total market cap of equities right now as a percentage of GDP is 160%. That, great, that ratio is greater than any other time in history prior to the outbreak of COVID, prior to 2020. So we have, we have a situation now where we have um, a bear market started in the end of 21. It fell 20% in 22. We had a brief reprieve for in a few stocks in 23. Phase two is happening in 24. Don't be fooled by the mainstream financial media. And the level from which the S&P has to fall from is higher than any other time prior to 2020. And that is not just in nominal terms. I'm talking about as a percentage of the underlying economy. So watch out below. Welcome to Thoughtful Money. I'm its founder and your host, Adam Taggart. Like many, today's guest was quite concerned entering 2023 that a recession was all but inevitable, but it never showed up. As the year nears its end and a new one readies to begin, did we indeed dodge a bullet? Or has the recession only been delayed, now ready to make landfall in 2024, perhaps with even stronger destructive force than had it arrived sooner? For answers, we turn to the highly popular and always informed money manager and macro analyst, Michael Pinto. Michael, my friend, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Adam. And I just want to start off by saying congratulations to you for the start of Thoughtful Money. I think um, it's going to be way bigger than your previous venture. So congratulations again. Um, I, I, I just want to start off by saying that I don't believe the hype from the mainstream financial media. There will be no soft economic landing, and we are not in a bull market now, and we're not going to be in a bull market next year. Let's just go over some facts, okay? The bull market ended in late 2021, and the S&P 500 is still down 4%. That's in nominal terms, Adam. It's 4% mm-hmm. since it's peaked in November of 2021. And when you, of course, when you inflation adjust those numbers, it, it's much worse. And of course, that includes the 7 mega cap tech stocks that are solely responsible for boosting the index. So you have se- basically seven AI stocks. They are up 80% in 2023. The other 493 stocks are up 4% this year. Four, just four lousy percent. And that's being after being down 20% in 2022. But you listen to like CNBC and you think, oh my God, there's this massive bull market that I'm missing out on. It's just not true. They're also trying to convince you that 2024 is going to be a very soft, cushy landing. They're they're wrong on both counts. Let's go through some more numbers. The Russell 2000 is down 27%. That's 2,000. That's not the Dow 30, the NASDAQ 100. It's 2,000 stocks in the Russell 2000. 27% since November of 2021. And the 60-40 portfolio, which includes bonds, it's even worse. If you look at uh, the benchmark treasury, long duration, you know, middle of the curve and longer, that is down 40% since 2022. So the worst is ahead because the salient issues have not been resolved. And what are the salient issues? The salient problem all stems from this. We had a sub 1% interest rate, Fed funds rate, for 11 of the 14 years from 2008 to 2022. And what did that do? 
that led to a, a massive amount of debt to be accumulated, an unserviceable amount of debt, especially under a normal interest rate regime. And it also led to unsustainable levels of asset bubbles. And those things, they haven't gotten better, they've gotten worse. So a crash landing is still coming. The timing for that is crucial. And I will use my IDEC model for that timing. I have not been net short in my portfolio for the entire duration of 2023, not one day. I expected the recession to, to start, as you said, and it hasn't officially begun yet. And that's important, by the way, Adam, because when, it, when the recession officially begins, the average decline in the S&P 500 is 32%, going back to to data since the end of the Great Depression, 32% from the, from the start of their official recession. That is something I think is gonna happen in 24. But again, um, I was wrong about 2023 recession, but not so wrong because in general, the market hasn't gotten, gone anywhere and the real economy is teetering on a collapse just hasn't happened yet. And I'm going to go into the reasons during this interview why I think it's going to happen and what I'm going to look for to determine when I will know when to get net short in the portfolio. Okay, great kickoff. So many great points there to dig into. Um, I do want to get into exactly what you just laid out there, Michael. Um, let's see, let's see the right way to, to dive into this. Let, let me let me just grab onto the MAG7 stocks for a second. Mm -hmm. Um so they have been the saviors of the market this year, right? You're saying they're the evidence that everybody's pointing to that the economy is resilient. The market's going to do great still from here. Soft, you know, investors no, not, don't need to worry. I just interviewed um, Fred Hickey, high tech strategist. Uh, he's been following the tech sector for most of his career, over 40 years, um, publishing on them. He's really pretty darn bearish on, on most of them, um, particularly Apple and Tesla. Um, but this is a guy who's just sort of, you know, paid to cover this industry and, and probably has a fair amount of incentive to try to be optimistic when he can be. And he's he's pretty bearish on them. But I'm curious, what are your reasons for thinking that the MAG-7 miracle is not going to keep the party going next year? It's just history, based on history, not, not that I'm some AI expert. But um, if you look at past history, whenever you saw uh, a consolidation into just a few names of stocks, think the Nifty 50, and this is evident also in other countries, whenever you see a very narrow stock market led by just a handful of names, not the Nifty 50, the Nifty 7, <laughs> it never ends well. Because you can't have a healthy market when only a few stocks are participating in that bull market. If you look at the equal weight S&P 500, it is down 10%. It's still down 10%, including the AI stuff in the last two years. So I'm not saying that we need a collapse of the, the AI uh, narrative for the market to correct. Listen, in a recession, the S&P 500 drops 32%. That includes everything, nifty 50s, AI, everything. So I am not going to sit there and tell you that just because AI is the technology of the future, and I believe it is, and I can't wait to invest in it, that that's going to save the stock market or the economy. 
because the earnings growth rate that they are predicting of 11% is never going to happen when nominal GDP is crashing from where it once was to where it's going to be in 24. So you're going to have an earnings miss in the S&P 500. And of course, as always, sectors are important, Adam. You can't just say, I'm going to short the entire market and, and look like a superstar. Um, but if you play this carefully and you get your timing right, there's a tremendous amount of money to be made by shorting this market and by going long the bond market, treasury complex, in the correct duration. And then after this consummation of this reconciliation of the asset bubble occurs, that includes real estate as well, there's a tremendous opportunity to get long what I think is going to be a protracted period of stagflation, such as this country has never seen before. Wow. Okay. Um, you're definitely going to where I want to kind of end up here, which is, you know, what is your model telling you how to position and, and how are you planning <laughs> on playing this? You've just given us a little peek into that, which is great. Um, okay, so let me let me let me go back again. Um, so uh, you mentioned that you know you the recession did not arrive on the timeline you thought it was initially you initially thought it was going to in 2023. And Michael, let me say you've got tons of, of company there, right? You're not the only one. Almost everybody thought that we were going to have a recession and we were going into 2023. I think you were maybe one of the first to call that, and then the world kind of caught up to you. But then the world got surprised because the recession did not arrive this year. 2023 will be the year of the recession that wasn't. Mm -hmm. And you know, I've had a number of discussions with folks of late of, okay, so why were the reasons for that? And, and it's multifactorial, but I think the biggest reason, as best I can tell, is you warned, sure, almost two years ago now, <laughs> that... Um, the markets were going to go through a, a painful time because we were going to have the biggest monetary cliff and the biggest fiscal cliff that the country had ever experienced happening simultaneously. And what's interesting is while we did get the monetary cliff, right, QE turned off, the Fed started really tightening aggressively. Um, they had been putting on the monetary breaks. That said, there's been stuff going on with reserves that has really moderated that, as well as the um, the um, BFTP, you know, the, the bank rescue stuff that went on. So it's not quite as aggressive as it looks like. And then we didn't really get the fiscal cliff. The, the, the fiscal side of the house has been still stimulating pretty hard with deficit spending. So um, uh, presumably it's that liquidity on the fiscal side and not quite as heavy monetary tightening as we thought um, that has sort of pushed the recession out. That's that's what I've taken from folks. Is that your view as well? So I have two reasons why um, the recession has been delayed, um, but not canceled. So uh, number one reason is what you just mentioned, massive fiscal stimulus from uh, our, our president, Joe Biden. Um, the other reason is the terming out of debt, which you didn't mention, but I will mention the terming out of debt is when, you know, you lock in 30 year fixed rates on your mortgage and you don't have to have to have adjustable rate mortgages cause you to sell your house or the corporations, which have locked in long duration uh, debt out at very low interest rates. That is changing now. That is changing. So let me go through um, what I think, if you don't mind, if I can go through what's happening now that lets me think that as these interest rates have been increased from zero to five and a quarter to five and a half percent on the Fed funds rate, uh, 
as you go through time, you see people refinancing into higher mortgages and issuing debt at higher rates, which is going to lead to the recession. So if you don't mind, I, I, let me go through a few things. If you don't please, mind. Please do. And let me just note on that, that that is, um, that impacts both governments, right? We're already seeing that in the US with our, our uh, interest on in federal debt exploding. That is true of corporations, which will be, you know, rolling into this re-rating you're talking about. And it's true of households. So it's, it's hitting all aspects of the economy at once or okay. will be going forward. So let's start exactly. Do you want me to start with the, the, the U.S. debt situation since you start mentioned Start wherever it? you no. like, my friend. Okay. All right. I, I think the U.S. debt is headed for junk status. And it, it gives me no pleasure to say that because I love this country and I wish it wasn't the case. But the U.S. national debt is now uh, almost $34 trillion. Our deficit in uh, fiscal 2023 was $1.7 trillion. The interest on that debt alone is $700 billion. And the interest expenses, <clears throat> excuse me, are going to reach $1 trillion by 2025. Entitlements and interest on our debt is going to equal 100% of all revenue by 2040. The, now, this is where the rubber really meets the road. When you think about the U.S., if, if the United States government was a corporation or if it was an individual going to the bank, our annual deficit is 45% of total revenue. And the national debt is an, a mind-boggling 770% of our annual federal income. Now, I use income to the Treasury because it's a better example uh, or more illustrative of, of what we can actually use. Because you know the US government can't tax GDP at 100%. It just wouldn't work because no one would go to, <laughs> no one would be employed and there'd be no revenue. The revenue would be zero. Ask Art Laffer about it. So I'm looking at these um, deficits and debt as a percentage of the income. And it's it, it leads me to the conclusion and many others who look at it objectively that the United States government is insolvent. Now, I talked about the United States. Let me just touch on global debt. Global debt is now $300 trillion. That's 350% of global GDP. And that is 26%, not percentage points, Adam, 26% higher than it was that the, at just prior to the Great Recession. And that was 278% of GDP. So that's what this is the this is the situation now we're facing where we have these higher rates and the higher rates are putting a tremendous amount of pressure on governments. And, you know, if you don't have the central bank monetizing that debt, you know, people tell me all the time. Um, well, and this is like the mantra of the mainstream financial media. Well, government's debt, government debt doesn't matter because they could just print it and you know monetize it all the way. Mm -hmm. Well, that's true. That is true. They have a printing press. All fiat currencies have printing presses. But if you're going to have a printing press, you can't also tell me that you don't have an inflation problem. And if inflation has already jumped the shark 2% to 9%, in reality, 20%, you can't tell me that the central bank can just say, I'm going to inflate it all away. So you're going to have to have the public buy this debt, not the central bank, and the public demands a real interest rate on that debt. So yes, public debt does matter, and it matters in a bit in a big way. 
Um, here's another. Let's go. To, let's go to corporations now. There's 1.8 trillion dollars of corporate debt that needs to be refinanced over the next two years. That debt currently carries interest rate of 2.8 percent. So <laughs> debt service payments are going to double next year. More than double. Yeah. <clears throat> More than double. More than double. 40% of companies in the Russell 2000, 4-0, are unprofitable right now. That figure was 20% heading into the Great Recession. And of course, unprofitable companies have to borrow money. And the cost of those, the cost of those funds have already doubled since 2022, and they're going to double again. So um, those are the kind of things where you say, well, we're lapping inexorably higher and higher borrowing costs. And even though those costs were defrayed uh, for a couple of years, they are happening now. Mm-hmm. And that is causing the economy to erode. That's going to cause er- earnings to erode. And it's going to lead to... Ca- Let me just say this, Adam. The illiquidity... Because you mentioned this. I'll just tie it all together. Sure. The illiquidity in the treasury market is already you know, eye-popping. You see treasury yields trade like, I, I say, you know, small cap pink sheets stocks would trade. Let's see, let's see what happens in March of 2024. In March of 2024, supposedly, I think there's a hundred, I think there's $114 billion in the bank term funding program. Now, that, don't forget, that's the program that rescued the banking system in March. You, you say, you say, well, Mr. Penta, you, 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 you predicted a recession, and a recession didn't come, so you're a moron. Okay, well, <laughs> I didn't predict that the Federal Reserve would bail out the entire U.S. financial system, but they did. So, you know, my portfolio reacted to it. But without that bank term funding program, you've got the, in reality, the entire U.S. financial system or basically the entirety of the U.S. financial system is insolvent right now. If you take their assets and mark them to market, <laughs> they're insolvent, they're upside down. And that's even worse now than it was in March. Um, so if in if in March in 24, the bank term funding program is supposed to be a one-year maximum duration. And at that time, all those assets that they took off the bank's balance sheets, which were way underwater, should go back to the banks at par. Uh, They were taken from the banks at par. The banks are going to be taking these assets back on their balance sheets at the real value that they are right now, which is even worse than they were in March of 23. So sorry to interrupt, but I just want you to make a prediction right now, because we're not that far away from the one year (laughs) anniversary of this. Are they going to be able to do that? Or is this thing going to have to be amended? They have, I mean, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm li- I listen to the press conferences that Powell has, and I'm like, please, somebody ask him. Please, somebody have the <laughs> the, the uh, I won't say it that the courage. I had an Italian word I was going to use um, for uh, the courage to ask Powell what is he intend to do. He did bail out the entire financial system. There's 114 billion dollars there as of the last reporting uh, series. Uh, what are you going to do? Are you going to tell these banks, here you go, here's your treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Uh, we gave you par, even though they were like 70 cents on the dollar. And now they're going back to you at 60 cents or 50 cents, whatever they are on the dollar. Uh, have a nice life. Then It's impossible. He will never do it. So he's going to have to extend 
that. But there's something else happening in March, just coincidentally. And that is the reverse repo facility, which I, I, I've been talking about this for months now. I don't know. I, I, I think you mentioned it, but I didn't know you were aware of it, but I should have known because you're aware of so much, Adam. Yeah, yeah. The reverse repo facility runs dry. And that's easy liquid in March of 24. That's the easy liquidity that's out there. That's the easy money right now. So banks park their excess reserves, which were over $2 trillion about a year ago at the Federal Reserve. They get interest on those excess reserves. And now what, what the banks are doing is taking those excess reserves and they're buying treasuries with them. And then the Fed's QT program is washing that much just, you know, a, a balance sheet um, equation where you're just taking money out of the RRP and then you're wiping out the the uh, base money supply through the uh, QT program. But come March of 24, there's no more money left in the reverse repo facility. So the bank liquidity runs dry at that moment, at that time, around that time. And then the illiquidity in the treasury market goes exponentially higher. That's another issue for March of, of, of next year that I'm watching. I'm watching closely. Okay, um, I got to put a pin in that one because I want to. I want to square that with your outlook for treasury bonds uh, for next year. But real quick before we do, I want to zoom just way up uh, for just a second. So you talked about how global debt is now 350% of global GDP. And to a certain extent, I think you can categorize, you know, all the all the issues that we have economically and financially, my opinion, you could put the biggest sort of existential challenge to the whole soup as drowning in too much debt. And you're nodding as I'm saying this. So um and that's in some ways the the outcome of a fiat monetary regime, um, because these these currencies are borrowed into existence. That uh, at some point, if you let them run long enough, that the debts mount up, and then that you 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 basically have this this massive debt overhang that you're forced to make a decision on. Um, we either have to let all the bad, unproductive debts default. Um, which is incredibly painful, um, or we have to deal with it through by inflating away the currency, and and that's essentially it's, it takes longer. It's a little less hard to notice, uh, but that is a default of a different sort because you're just destroying the purchasing power of the currency. Uh, are we globally headed towards one of these two types of defaults, and if so, which one do you think is more likely? Uh, letting the actual, you know, debts default themselves, or inflating away the purchasing power of these currencies. Yeah, it's like it, it's like a bully, like in a, in a school playground. You know, the bullies talk tough, but when you actually stand up to a bully and, and you punch them in the face, they usually back down because they're basically cowards. This is this is how you know Powell is talking tough, and the rest of the central bankers, the same thing with Lagarde and, and the ECB. They talk very tough about fighting inflation, because that's part of their job. The mandate is stable prices, even though they're the most miserable <laughs> they have the most <laughs> track record. miserable track record that you could possibly come up with. Um, you know, they, they even define stable prices as 2%. But anyway, I, I don't want to digress into that. 
the worst thing that a central banker can uh, engender is a depression. And the gravel, the gravitational forces of debt default demand that a depression occurs. Because there's two parts of the puzzle. When you take interest rates down below 1% for 11 of the past 14 years from 2008 to 2022, Adam, that, is never, that has never been done before in this country. And you can't tell me that it, that didn't create massive distortions, economic distortions. Well, one of them you just mentioned was debt. But what you didn't mention was the asset bubble part of that. Because what, what, we, what we do when we take out debt is we buy things with it. Right. And when debt, sorry, is plentiful <laughs> and cheap, you get tons of malinvestment, which is and exactly when you what you're talking about. And when you get paid to borrow money, as was the, was the case of $17 trillion of this debt globally, $17 trillion of negative yielding debt at its apex. What you do with that debt is you buy things with it. You buy stocks and you buy bonds, you buy assets, you buy homes. And we had a triumvirate of bubbles. Uh, the bubble in the bond market was the first to pop. The NASDAQ, it, the like I said, the, um, the uh, S&P 500, equal weight S&P 500 is still down 10%, 10%. I think I mentioned that statistic yeah. to you, I remember. So we already, and that's in nominal terms again, we're not talking about the real purchasing power of the, the, the S&P 500 equal weight. So we have a the bursting of the bond bubble, which is beginning. We have yet to see that occur in corporate debt yet, amazingly, but that's coming in 24. $1.8 trillion of corporate debt has to be re refinanced. Don't that that's such a key point. If you, if you forget, if you forget everything else I say about this conversation, remember that the debt was termed out, corporate debt was termed out in, in 2020 to 2022, 2024 and 25. There's 1.8 trillion dollars that has to be refinanced at much higher interest rates. So when you have asset bubbles and you have a massive amount of debt, the last thing you can possibly afford to have happen, because it's politically suicide, is a depression. A debt default leads to a depression, especially when debt is this much you know, disconnected from reality. And concomitant with that debt default is a crash in asset prices, particularly real estate. Now, home price to income ratios are higher today than they were at the previous peak in 2006, which led to the bankruptcy of the US financial system and indeed the global financial system as a whole. Home price to income ratios. What do you think, what do you think the, the value of banks would be? What do you think their condition of their balance sheets would be? Remember, they're already bailed out because banks are underwater because they're, um, their income streams are upside down, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're having to pay more for deposits than they're collecting on their, you know, three and 4% mortgages. Um, and, and their balance sheet is upside down because the assets they hold that they were marked to market aren't, aren't worth what they used to work. They're, they're negative. They're, they're underwater. What do, you gonna what do you think is going to happen when their assets, what do you think would happen if home prices were allowed to collapse down to, Home price to income ratios went back to say like, you know, three or four instead of seven, which is where they right. are now. And assuming that's because the, the home prices collapsed, not because the incomes went up, which they are not doing so. No. So yeah, yeah, it would be, I don't want to use the term Armageddon, but it would be something on that level to the banking system. 
So Powell, so Powell's going to get his, if that scenario were to happen, Powell would get his wish that, you know, inflation would be, would be tamed. He would get, he'd get his, his, you know, it would go from nine to where 3.2% where it is now, then it would go to two and then it would go to minus five. Right, so right, right. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, what are they going to? So the answer, it's a very long answer to your question is that we're going to have both conditions of inflation and deflation at different times. Right now we are fighting inflation, which is going to breed, which bred disinflation, which is going to, which is going to lead to deflation, which is going to lead Powell to do the only thing he can do. And Lagarde is no different. And the people's bank of China and uh, the bank of Japan, oh, they're all going to do the same thing. They all seem to sing. They all seem to sing from the same hymnal. Uh, they are going to flood the banking system with money, and that is going to create stagflation like we have never before even imagined in this country. So, if you have a static sixty forty portfolio and you're you know always in bonds and you're always in long duration bonds and stocks or you're always in AI and whatever, it, it doesn't work. You have to actively, and I think you understand this because you're a big advocate for um, having your money managed by a professional. I, and correct me if I'm wrong about that. But no, no, I am. By, by a good, experienced professional who takes into account in their strategy all the things we talk about here, which, as you know, Michael, a lot of guys don't. Yeah. Well, Adam, in my opinion, and I've been doing this 32 years, um, and I know in this light you can tell that I've been doing it a long time. <laughs> I feel all my wrinkles. I'm 60 years old. I've been doing this 32 years, and the and I say this, and I worked on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, Wall Street is comprised of mostly salespeople. They get paid to gather assets. They are asset gatherers, first and foremost. And on the fringes, you'll get um, market strategists and economists. You get hedge funds, private equity. There, there's, there's those people out there. But for the most part, what people want to do in this business, 95% of them, they gather assets plug it into some model that mirrors the S&P 500 and hope they never hear from you again. And if the S&P goes down, which it does often and goes down a lot, they will tell you what? You can't time the market. It's timing in the market. It's time mm -hmm. in the market, not timing the market. Buy and hold a 60-40 portfolio is the only way to go. Right. Which but magically translates into... Give me all your money. Don't ask me any questions. <laughs> well, it's easier if I'm sitting at my, and this is what I do. I sit at my desk all day, start at six o'clock in the morning. And I'm, I'm evaluating the economic data as they come through, assimilating that, putting it through my model and making decisions about where to invest. That's why I wasn't net short in 2023. Um, but if you do that, guess what you can't do? You can't also go out and gather assets. This is either one or the other. You're either an asset gatherer and a salesperson, or you are a market strategist and let your results speak for themselves to gather assets for you. Right. And I'm glad you said that because don't want to go fully off the rails on this, but you know, you want to find somebody, folks, who is good, professional, you know, good track record, understands all the issues that Michael and I are talking about here, but whose marketing arm is their results. <laughs> right. So somebody who doesn't have to go out there and hustle and spend their time at the country club handing out, you know, 
business cards and, and trying to chum their way uh, into clients. It's somebody who's just doing the hard work and letting the results speak for themselves. So someone who's also honest, has integrity, like yourself, um, and spends their time worrying about their client's money because their money's in the same construct, the same rubric as yours, and is trying to do the best thing for their clients at all times and is not just trying to sell them a, a you know, reconstituted S&P 500 index. Right. Well, so Michael, this is why I want to dig into you here because you're you're one of the great guests I like to bring on. One because you're you've got a great grasp of what's happening macro-wise, but you don't have the luxury of just having an opinion. You actually have to manage client capital and produce results. So let's look at your outlook for 2024 here. Um, from much of what you've said, I'm sort of intimating that you believe, like several other folks I've interviewed relatively recently, that 2024 is going to be kind of the year where the wheels come off. Um, you were not net short in 2023, despite your strong bias at the beginning of the year because of your model. And you've talked in the past uh, with me in in depth about how your model works. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a discipline for you where you're not just trading on what your emotions are telling you any given day. You're, you, you need to have the the support of your model before you make a big direction and change on your portfolio allocations. So tell us what you expect the, the economy and the markets to do next year, and then tell me how you expect your model to react and, and how you think you'll likely be deploying to ride whatever volatility is going to be uh, in the world next year. Okay. Okay. So despite the National Federation of Independent Businesses um, constantly presaging that the recession is coming, um, that we've also had the longest inversion of the yield curve in 43 years, 43 years. Um, also the index of leading economic indicators has been pointing to recession. So we're heading there. And as we're lapping the higher rates, the recession is coming, but my model looks also at financial conditions, which remain quiescent and credit spreads, which remarkably, unbelievably remain quiescent. I mean, if you no, ask nobody's me today, worried on that part. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you're sub 4% on the spread between high yield and treasuries. Um, these are what this is one of the indicators I look at as to when I should be concerned because I know credit leads the stock market and I'm not going to get short until I see some tightening in my own proprietary financial conditions index and I see some tightening in the credit spreads. But let me go over why I why I see that already, the weakness already happening, which is front running what I think is going to happen with um, credit spreads and financial conditions. So, so far this year, let's look at the labor. Can I talk a little about the labor market first? Please do. So far this year, companies have announced layoffs that are, are an increase of 198, almost 200% from last year. If you look at the um, non-farm payroll report, which was being touted as, you know, oh, look at how great the, <laughs> the Bidenomics is working so well. Um, if you look at the index of aggregate hours worked, it is lower today at the October report, lower in October than it was in January. It, it, think about that. That's the, now what does the index of aggregate hours work tell us? That is the, that was, that, that's the labor impulse into the economy. 
So it takes the number of jobs out there and the hours, you know, the, as an index, not just looking at the number of jobs out there. Because if you have a job that's full-time, you know, 10, eight to 10 hours a day, working at a, a factory, mine, utility, manufacturing, and you get fired and you have two jobs. One is five hours as a Walmart greeter and, you know, you know, four hours at, um, at Kmart. And the Kmart's gone. I, I'm showing my age. Again. Starbucks. Uh, how about Star Starbucks? Oh, that works. Well, um, you've, you've doubled the number of jobs out there. Oh, Binomics is working so well. But <laughs> there's no benefits really uh, to speak of. Maybe there is benefit to Starbucks. I don't want to say there is or there isn't. But the, the, the quality of the job, the income isn't there. Right. And the hours aren't there. So that's what's happening. That's the truth. This is this is not Michael Pinto's data. I don't use my own data. I'm using facts that come from the, the, the Department of Labor. Now, that's the labor market. Oh, I forgot to mention the the um the household survey, not the establishment survey, showed a decline in October of 348,000 jobs. A decline. And the household survey usually leads the establishment survey. Um, there's also a this fiscal drag that we're talking. Let me just go into briefly why I think 24 is going to be again the recession and lead to not a soft landing but a crash landing. Um, there's no there's no real fiscal boost coming. Um, pandemic related save savings are going to continue to erode in both nominal and real terms, and inflation inflation is lowering the standard of living. Uh, the lower three quintiles of U.S. consumers are getting crushed. Let's look, for example, groceries are up 25% since the start of COVID. 25%. Now, are these people's incomes up 25% since the start of COVID? No, no way. Now, <clears throat> now, the COVID mortgage forbearance programs, FHA insured mortgages and reverse mortgages, are ending, I believe they end November 30th. November 30th of this year. That's just a couple of days away, Adam. These people have not made a mortgage payment in, in almost three years. 70% of all mortgages are FHA insured. Now, student loan payments supposedly, you know, began again in September on September 1st. Although many I, are not I, paying them, but yes. <laughs> I I have my, you know, if if Biden had this on-ramping. Uh, clause in this student loan uh, repayment where he says, hey, listen, it, you're supposed to repay your student loans. I'm sorry. The Supreme Court said you have to do it. I wish they didn't have to abide by the contract that they signed on to. Um, and, but if you don't pay your student loan, guess what? I will not ding your credit score. So I have my doubt as to how bad that is going to be for um, the recession. But it's out there. Some people... Uh, understand they should be paying their student loan. They're supposed to repay it, and they are. More importantly, the employee retention credit. That was a tax credit of up to $28,000 per employee. That expired on September 14th. So we're starting to see the lagged effects of monetary tightening now. Uh, let's just say uh, retail sales um, fell for the first time in seven months in October. And that is that retail sales are a nominal number. So mm -hmm. if retail sales are down, and we know that that's that's a huge tell of how bad the economy is becoming because they're not adjusted for inflation. 
Yeah. Hey, just two things on, on retail sales. One is um, you, you mentioned the bottom quartiles have been really feeling the pain. Uh, in, in the Black Friday sales, they're now saying that the top 20%, which has been driving the predominance of the consumer spending, they're now starting to pinch pennies, right? So um, uh, it looks like even the higher end consumer is starting to tap out at this point in time. Correct. Good observation. Um, corporate bankruptcies in the U.S. rose by 30% over the past year. Um, so we're starting to see these, these lag effects of monetary tightening affect both the labor market and corporations and consumption. And I see that getting worse, not better, as we lap these higher rates in 24. All right. Well, I have been banging the lag, of, lag effect drum for months and months and months. And I appreciate uh, that you are giving us some great examples of how we're actually starting to see it manifest here. So, okay. So, um, so uh, appearing in your crystal ball, I'm not going to hold you to any sort of real time frame here, but when do you expect the debate to be over? as to whether we're going to have a hard landing or soft landing or no landing, like when, 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 because it seems like you expect the lag effects to cause, you know, a visible enough recession that the market finally gets the memo and the market starts breaking. Is that something you expect to happen sort of in the first half of the year, second half of the year? Don't know yet. I would expect by the end of the first quarter of next year, especially since the bank term funding program is supposed to expire, there's a small chance that he might actually let it expire, but probably again, not. That, yeah. that is that is that is an outlier. Right. But that but with more, the reverse repo running out, yeah, those are two that, big factors. But the reverse repo facility going to zero, basically zero. I mean, there's usually, and I look back um, through the decades, this facility usually has about two hundred billion dollars in it. Uh, we're at eight hundred billion, so we're close. And the, the the vector that I see the trajectory should be at 200 billion or less by March, end of March of 24. And I think at that point there's chaos in the bond market. And and I want to I want to stress this point because it's important about where we invest on the yield curve. I have been short duration bonds for most of 2023, just collecting that that higher and higher yield. Sorry, you have that, been in short duration bonds. That's is that what, what I said? said? Right? Is that what yeah. I said? I yeah. just want to make sure you, people didn't hear you said you were short duration bonds. You are yeah, in was, short duration bonds. Yeah, yeah right. So short-term bond, T-bills. Yeah. And the three years and less. Um, and three years and less. Because I, you know, the chaos that's going to exist in long duration bonds, there's going to be a small window. I think it's going to be a very narrow window to invest in TLT and, and zero coupon bonds. And then at the end of that, now don't, don't forget, we have a deficit that's now $2 trillion, almost $2 trillion. Deficits usually rise, rise 200% in recessions, Adam, 200%. So our deficit could easily be five to $6 trillion after the, the next recession occurs. And you have to say to yourself, is the Fed really going to buy all that debt? Mm -hmm. And if they do, they're damned if they do, if they're damned if they don't. If they actually endeavor to buy all that debt, 
you're looking at stagflation like we have never seen before. I mentioned that a few times already, and I want to hammer that point home. That's where I think we're headed. Now, if they don't buy all that debt, interest rates are going well into the double digits in this country, in the United States of America. And interest rates on double digits that exist on top of massive bubbles in real estate and in the stock market are untenable. Right. So there is just, words, just the American economy can't operate. I mean, I'm surprised it's operating still here at five and a quarter. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 only because of that debt was termed out. Most of that debt was termed out, but that that changes in 24 and 25. Yeah. Um, but there is no way you can have a viable economy with that much debt and that extent of asset bubbles and have interest rates go to double digits, which is where they would go for sure. If we had $6 trillion annual and that $6 trillion annual deficit and the public was asked to take that in because what happens when you have a recession is that your income to the treasury dries up, but the automatic, just as the automatic stabilizers kick in, you know, food stamps and welfare right, and employment right. insurance, th those are automatic. There's no bill or law or discussion. <laughs> that has to take place place in Congress. It just happens automatically. So if you look at the la the, what happened in the Great re Recession, that the deficits went up two hundred percent. It could happen again. Okay. And so so that's that's what I'm concerned about in, in next year. All right. Um, so we're beginning to get a little tight on time. So I want to get to the meat of the burger here, which is um, how are you positioned now for what you see ahead? And I know you're going to follow your large part what your model is telling you in real time as the year unfolds but how do you currently right now expect to to shift your current positioning to address the things you think are most likely to happen if they indeed happen so 70 percent seven zero of our portfolio is in short duration treasuries those are t-bills and I think three years or less one to three year treasuries we have about a seven eight percent position in physical gold um we are long about seven to eight percent defense stocks, aerospace and defense stocks. Um, we are long the dollar, which is we have been long the dollar for two years. We have taken that down to a three percent position. We were close to ten percent long the U.S. dollar, not the long the U.S. dollar against gold, mm -hmm. <laughs> long the U.S. dollar against the euro and the yen and the pound. Okay, um, and we are we have a very small position, a two percent short junk bonds right now, we are going to take that much higher. And we have an anti-beta play, which is also about 2%. We're going to take that much higher as well. That's What's pretty anti-beta? Anti-beta. So it's a it's an ETF that shorts all sectors of the market, the higher volatility sectors of each market. So if you think utilities, we're shorting the higher volatility, high volatility utilities, we're long the low volatility. If we're in it, we're in the tech sector. We're long the low volatility tech, and we're short the high volatility. Got it. Okay. So we plan on taking that much higher too. We also plan to, when the model tells me to, not when CNBC tells me how everything is wonderful or not wonderful. We will take the short duration bonds, T bills, and leapfrog going into uh, five to seven year treasuries. Because we want to take advantage of that duration play, because when the recession does become manifest, I think long duration bonds will have a huge rally in price down in yield. And is that is that because 
of the rescue efforts that the the central banks are going to take? Is it because of the crisis trade? People just want safety. Is it a combination of both? So, so if if it's if it's the rescue effort that they're going to take, that would be a reason to sell bonds. It's just it's just because when when the when the when the soft landing myth is debunked, you're going to have a tremendous amount of people that are sequestered in Apple and Amazon and Google and Nvidia. And they're going to say, oh, my God, um, guess what? Even though the Internet was really real in 2000 and it was going to change our lives, uh, you know, Cisco lost 80 percent of its value. And then right. like so uh, corporations stop spending money on AI because they're just you know circling the wagons. Yeah, they're in survival mode. Yeah. Those people who are massively sequestered in the big seven, the, Magn the magnificent seven are going to run to bonds and they're going to run to duration bonds. Maybe they won't go to zeros all the way out on the curve, but they'll stay in the belly of the curve. So around five to seven years, which is where I'm going to be. I'm going to sell the T-bills because the T-bills are going to go down in, in not, not down in principle because they're zero duration, down in their interest stream because the yep. Fed, will be cutting, Fed will be cutting rates. And I want to capture that uh, increase in price, in duration, take advantage of that convexity is what they call it. And then I think once the Fed capitulates and starts to massively cut interest rates and starts to stimulate the economy again, that's going to be a big danger for duration treasuries because guess what? They're going to be, you know, what are duration treasuries most fearful of? Inflation. Inflation. Yeah. Inflation. Okay. And, and okay. that is going to wax. Uh, I think this might be the fourth time I'm going to say, I'm not going to say it, but I, I said it before. I don't think the Fed, see, here's the thing, Adam. The bully in the playground could say, I am, I'm the strongest guy out here. I can fight inflation. I'll you know, make the allegory to, to Powell. I can fight inflation. I can bring interest rates above inflation and keep it there and provide people with a real return on their savings. And then when the whole house of cards collapses, what is Powell going to do? Right? He, what is he going to say? There's not anybody on Wall Street who's going to believe him. They'll all know that this is this is what's going to happen. You either either allow the gravita gravitational forces of deflation to wipe out asset prices, wipe out the banking system, wipe out the stock market, or alternatively, you're going to be forced to print money indefinitely in a protracted sense with no end in sight. Real interest rates will be low forever. Gold is going to explode. Energy is going to explode. Base metals are going to explode higher. Stagflation is going to rain because inflation does erode the middle class. And no country can withstand uh, a middle class that is eviscerated. Totally agreed. And Michael, next time you're on, I want to dig more deeply just sort of into the nefarious effects of that because I think that that's a big trend that's going on right now. We don't have time in, in, in this uh interview which sadly I got to bring to a close pretty quickly here um on on the bond side of things I just want to try to thread the needle here if I can um so you see a safety trade of of capital fleeing other assets going into treasuries and and that's you want to be well positioned to to ride the uh, appreciation in the mid duration uh notes we'll say 5 to 7 year uh notes um 
and I understand that when the Fed goes into full-blown rescue efforts, eventually the, the bond market's going to say, well, wait a minute, this is permanent inflation. You know, we need to be compensated for that. There is a there is a belief, and dispel it if it's wrong, which is when the Fed initially announces it's going to get back into the rescue game, that bond prices will shoot the moon because everybody is going to say, hooray, the Fed's out buying treasuries again, mm. right? So will there be sort of a, an initial phase where bonds will rise in price because of the rescue efforts? And then over time, they'll kind of get the memo, this means more inflation, and it'll start coming down. Um, or do you see a different path than that? W wonderful question. Initially, you could see some flight to safety, but you're, if you're looking, if you backtest that theory, all those times since 1981, when the Fed, since 87, when they first started bailing out the, you know, the the, the, uh, the crash of October, Black Monday, um, we all had, we always had one problem in this country, which was not really a problem. It was a problem for the Federal Reserve. There wasn't enough inflation. Yeah. Uh, it, it, by no their way. measurements, but yes. Yeah, by their by their measurement, oh, we just we just we just you know what are we gonna do? Uh, we you know the economy can't survive. The U.S. the ex it's an existential crisis that we have one point nine percent inflation, not two. So, uh, so um, they broke. They jumped a shark on that in this helicopter money round post COVID. So I don't. I don't. I I think you're correct, but the period of time has shrunk. It's it's more truncated because I think people are going to be much more worried about supply, which has yep. never been this high. And they know where we're heading is inflation. So I would be much more cautious doing zeros and TLT. Um, and if I did that, I wouldn't want to go out for a long lunch. <laughs> I'd be close to the screen because I don't think that's going to last very long. It'll last for maybe a few months. But active again, like we, we were just talking about, active management, not the... Oh, you know, we got 60, 40. How old are you? Let me go. Let me go. I'm, I got a golf date. Uh, the links, I got to, I, I, I tee off at 10. So, um, you know, uh, that's my answer. Okay. So just in wrapping this up and, and Michael, you know, when this starts to, you start seeing this, even just hints of this starting to happen, this progression we're talking about, you come right back on this channel here and start calling things for us in, in live, uh, you know, real time audibles. Um, I will. I will. But when you when we've talked previously, you have talked about, um, hey, when when the vortex of you know when the market wakes up to all this, and we potentially get that you know thirty uh, two percent decline in the S and P, which is what you said tends to happen in in most recessions. That's the average um, average, and I think it could be much worse this time. Okay, so it could be much worse this time. Um, during that period, when the vortex is sucking everything down, you you have said you want to be in in your four horsemen, right? That's mm. your defensive position. Mm. And if I remember correctly, that is short term T bills, mm. um, that is long U.S. dollar, um, that is gold. If I got that correct, nope, gold later. So cash, oh, cash. Another, You're right. Another derivative of cash is another derivative of short term treasuries. Some physical gold. Uh, and shorts, you have to short them. You have to be able to short this market because the valuations. Can I just? Can I? Do I have time? To just do I have? Can I? Will Go you see it. me thirty seconds? Just yes. So the S and P five hundred is trading at eighteen and a half times forward earnings. That assumes we get a surge in earnings of eleven percent next year. That forward P/E ratio presumes you know eleven percent is higher 
than the 10-year average of 17.6. The, the S&P 500 dividend yield is 400 basis points lower than the risk-free T-bill rate. Total market cap of equities right now as a percentage of GDP is 160%. That, that ratio is greater than any other time in history prior to the outbreak of COVID, prior to 2020. So we have, we have a situation now where we have um, a bear market started in the end of 21. It fell 20% in 22. We had a brief reprieve for in a few stocks in 23. Phase two is happening in 24. Don't be fooled by the mainstream financial media. And the level from which the S&P has to fall from is higher than any other time prior to 2020. And that is not just in nominal terms. I'm talking about as a percentage of the underlying economy. So watch out below. All right. Um, great emphasis for just the, the risk that we're facing right now on the equity side of things. So what I wanted to note is you're already kind of pre-positioned in a lot of the four horsemen. Presumably when this thing really starts, you're going to ratchet up your junk Sorry, ra ratchet up your shorts. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, but you'll ratchet up your shorts. You'll stay in T-bills and cash and long USD, your your foundational gold position there. Then when the dust settles, um, you're going to rejigger that probably a lot based upon oh, the reality oh, yeah. on the ground. Then so, presumably so there's an opportunity in here to make some real money after so, the washout. So just to be specific, there's two the two main things I plan on changing in the portfolio is exiting T-bills, going out in duration, the belly of the curve around yep. five to seven years. That's the one thing. But the most thing I plan on looking forward to doing is increasing the shorts in junk bonds and increasing the anti-beta play and actually taking on short positions and going long. I, I, I invest for retirees. So we have a lot of 401k IRA money here. So I can't short the stocks in a, in a margin account. Which I which what I will do is go long ETFs that go up in value when the when the stocks go down. Those are the two things I plan on doing, and I plan on and doing that. I could actually make money potentially make money in the bonds and in the shorts and the USD and in gold, while everybody else is getting massacred. Unfortunately, the buy and hold sixty forty got the guy with the tee off time at uh, nine thirty when the bell rings. And then on the other end of that, I will completely alter that portfolio. I won't have any bonds in that portfolio. I'll have base metals, energy, gold, uh, a complete stagflation portfolio, which is diametrically opposed to what I own now. Hence the value of being with a, an active manager. Am I perfect? No. Do I get a lot of things right? Yes. And I tend to protect the principal during bear markets. With the potential to make money, we have a great potential to make money in 24 because in 22, bonds were zero. There was no room on the upside. Mm -hmm. So bond, that ballast was gone in the portfolio. There's no offsetting value. They got you killed if you owned any, especially going out in duration. But we have a better chance this time to make money. And, and the model that I've created is great understanding when the Fed has been successful in reliquifying the financial system so I can get ahead of the next great bull market. But understand being long deflationary hedges is going to get you crushed.
you have to be long stagflationary hedge. Got it. All right. So I got the progression. I'm going to call your current one that you're in right now still a disinflationary portfolio. You then get into your four horsemen when the, the bear market vortex kicks in. When the dust from that settles, you switch to the stagflationary portfolio. On each of those transition events, Michael, at a minimum, those are when I want you to come back on this program and tell us what you're doing in real time. I promise to do that just for you. <laughs> Just for thoughtful <laughs> okay. money. Only for me. No, that's right. Please spread it wide, you know, far and wide. Folks need to know this stuff. Nice. So, Michael, thank you so much. Um, I appreciate for being short on time. The challenge with you is it's just, one, you do a great job of packing two or three interviews worth of content into one. And I just wish I had two or three interviews worth of time to give you here. Um, but again, we'll just have you come back on the program in the future. For folks that have really enjoyed this discussion and would like to follow you and your work and, and learn more about how you manage money, where should they go? The website is pentoport.com. On the website, there's a podcast called The Midweek Reality Check. It's $50 a year. It gives you some of my higher level thoughts and what I'm thinking about managing money. Um, it's called The Midweek Reality Check, as I said. Uh, the office number is 732-772-9500. My email address is mpento at pentoport.com. Um, I'd leave you with this thought, if I if I may. Um because it really, it really irritates me to hear, you know, the FOMO, the fear of missing out out there. The, the stock market is very fragile. I'm not just talking about 2000 and 2008. In 2018, stock market got crushed until the, the Fed raised rates to two and a half. Stock market lost 20% of its value in a matter of weeks. Um, in, in COVID, 2020, the S&P lost 33% in one month. In uh, 2022, the S&P lost 30% from January through October. So please, don't be a victim again. Get yourself an active manager who understands the dynamics between inflation and deflation. You'll do yourself a lot better and have a much better retirement, in my opinion. Couldn't have said it better. Agree a thousand percent. And Michael, when I edit this, I will put up those links to all the resources you just shared. I love the fact that you very courageously share your uh, personal email there for folks to contact you directly. Get ready for the deluge, my friend. Uh, it's as always, my friend, just been a, a pure joy and pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. And God bless your new venture. All right. Well, I'm very happy to say that now is the time on the program where we bring in the lead partners from New Harbor Financial to react to what Michael Pento just said, as well as talk about what's caught their attention in the market since the last time they and I were on camera together, which was a couple of weeks ago. I'm joined uh, by lead partners from New Harbor, John Lodra and Mike Preston. And again, uh, New Harbor Financial is one of the few financial advisory firms that is officially endorsed by Thoughtful Money. John and Mike, great to see you guys. Hey, good Adam, to see you, how Adam. are you doing? Really good to see you again. Uh, I think this has been the longest hiatus. We haven't uh, had some active on uh, on our parents uh, with you uh, since about 14 years ago when we first started kind of getting to know each other and collaborating. So it was a long, uh, but we're, we're, we're so happy to be back with you here today. Well, thanks, to be back here. Oh, I'm sorry, Adam, but we just want to say thrilled to be back. And I've uh, known you a long time and, and uh, you know, uh, really value our relationship and, and, and happy to be back here with you on Thoughtful Money. Well, thank you, guys. And uh, I, I do want to very openly and publicly um, express my gratitude for just how supportive you've been through this whole transition ever since you first heard the news. And uh, so wonderful to have you back on. 
uh, here to share your expertise with the Thoughtful Money audience, um, as well as uh, help me begin to get the um, the uh, free uh, financial consultations back up and running too. I know that's a huge resource that folks have been missing. Um, but guys, before we get to all that, uh, we just had another phenomenal discussion with Michael Pinto. Um, you know, as I was taking my notes, I was sort of ticking mentally in my head. Yep. Okay. This is going to resonate with John and Mike. Yep. Okay. This sounds pretty similar to what the guys at New Harbor are doing. So I'm going to guess that you guys were pretty simpatico with how Michael is seeing the word, the world here, but uh, don't let me steal your thunder. Um, Mike, why don't we start with you? What was your reaction? Sure. I'll go right to the punchline, the way that uh, Michael has allocated. Um, he's very defensive, about as defenses, defensive as we've seen him, you know, watching all of his videos and commenting on quite a few number of the videos that you did with him. He's uh, He had said that he's at about 70% treasury bills right now, 8% gold, 8% defense stocks. Uh, I guess he said he was 2% short junk bonds and 2% uh, anti-beta. Um, which is essentially the um, you know, kind of large cap growth stocks, you know, kind of essentially a short exposure there. You know, we agree that makes sense. That makes sense for most people. For many people, 100% T-bills make sense right now uh, with treasury bills up at 5.2 to 5.4. Um, you know, it's really hard to beat that, and, and which is why we have a big chunk there as well. It's not, it's not 70%. Um, it's closer to 40-something percent, but it's important to have some dry powder. And clearly, Michael is very concerned about the economy. He talks about a crash, you know, essentially a crash landing next year, a, a recession or even a depression and followed by stagflation. This is an appropriate allocation for that type of expectation. We've never seen valuations as high as they are right now or, or in the last couple of years. We're still a little bit below the January 2022 high. I suppose that was the ultimate high valuation point so far, but we're still right there, not far from there. And at these levels with a Schiller PE in the mid 30s and even higher, if you account for margins, stock market cap to GDP that's approaching 200%, all kinds of different things that are just really off the charts high. And it's almost like they have to stay there forever now, because if they don't, the whole thing blows up. The whole debt vial blows up. Michael talked about the debt uh, being 33 trillion and how by 2040, uh, the payment on that existing debt will be 100% of revenues, tax revenues. I mean, that's really scary. So there's not a lot of things that the central bankers can do. We're kind of backed into a corner. So he talked about a really defensive allocation. By comparison, we're about 40% treasury bills, 10% uh, stock miners, uh, gold stock miners, and about 22% stocks in general. We have very, very slightly increased our allocation to stocks over the last few weeks. Most of that is hedged. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it a little bit more later in this program, but we saw a lot of our short-term indicators reverse up a few weeks ago. That's why we reduced our hedges, and we very, very judiciously and tactically added some exposure in key sectors that had good chart patterns, uh, that had very high relative strength against the S&P. But we still have hedges on our portfolio. We just moved the strike price uh, or, or the deductible of those hedges way down. Uh, the strike price was up around 4,500 on the S&P. Uh, on our S&P puts, we moved those down to 4,100 to preserve value. We didn't want to spend too much premium because we thought a real risk was occurring of another blow off top and the jury's out. We can take a look at some charts, but so far 
that's what it's looked like as we broke this downtrend a few weeks ago. So we're extremely bearish as well, but we have to admit that the technical indicators have improved and that for now, the direction um, suggests that we should reduce our hedges and take a little bit more of, of a bullish stance, although it's a very small one. All right. I appreciate you sharing that in such detail because, um, you know, these are challenging, challenging times for everybody to navigate, but, but certainly challenging times for professionals like you, where, um, you know, you, you're out there having to, you know, you're, you're, you've got your fiduciary responsibility to try to grow the wealth of your clients, um, but to do that in as risk managed a way as possible. Right. And so you're, you're seeing this market that you, fundamentally think is overvalued, right? But you've been able to make that case for many, many years. It doesn't mean the market's going to correct tomorrow, given these extreme readings. And you now are seeing uh, technically and some other indicators that show that it may indeed have some more further room to run. So you, rather than just sitting on your hands fully uh, and being fully out of the market, you are saying, okay, you know, we're seeing that we can take some opportunity to capture some of that, that run up if that goes on. But because we're skeptical about the market, we are putting our our hedges or our insurance in place so that if if if, if somehow you know a, a market correction catches everybody, including us, by surprise, at least you guys have these sort of uh, you know safety nets in place that kick in uh, before the market falls that much, and therefore really buffers your portfolio versus further losses from there. Where of course many many other people are just riding fully long. And if there is a market correction like that, it catches everybody by surprise that they're going to be really hurt by it. So John, um, I'll let you react as well. Um, when we were, before we turned on the camera, uh, you were telling me about sort of an interesting report from Vanguard, right? Which is famous for creating its index funds, which has yeah. been driving so much of the passive investing trends of the past two decades. Uh, and it sounds like even they are, are now a little bit worried about or, or maybe sounding a bit of an alarm about a passive investing strategy in this market where valuations are so extended, like Mike was saying. Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. And it really, you know, kind of harkens to Michael Pento's comments about the traditional 60-40 static portfolio, not only having been a, a really challenging way to have invested over the last couple of years, uh, but going forward will likely be very challenging. That's very much in our DNA. We uh, we, we don't think uh, having a static allocation makes sense. We think tactical shifts, either um, among sectors of the stock market, but, but more importantly, allocations between different kinds of assets that we've already talked about, uh, and we agree with Michael Pento, having a very large allocation to not stocks or long-term bonds, but very short-term treasuries makes a lot of sense. That flies in the face of, of the static passive investment philosophy. But the fact is, um, as, as you've uh, preluded there, um, Vanguard even came out with a report recently. And, and basically, uh, and, and we did a, a very short video uh, review of this report on our own YouTube channel. You can find us, New Harbor Financial Group on, on YouTube. But basically, they have some very pointed uh, comments in there, in there that a static portfolio can, can and oftentimes does fall uh, far short of meeting the goals. And when we think about goals, we think about our clients. It's not about getting eyeballs on CNBC or, or any channel, but about helping our clients make sure that the money they have is not here just today or tomorrow, but it's gonna be there for 30, 40 years or, or more perhaps uh, during retirement. Um, so Vanguard did a report there and, and they highlighted that there have been periods when valuations are high, that stocks, for example, have had a negative 5% annual return over 10 years. 
um, bonds even 0%. So, and, and it correlates with valuations. Valuations are very poor short-term timing indicators, but they're actually quite robust predictors of longer-term returns. In fact, we can you, know, you can show mathematically that the um, statistical usefulness of valuations um, becomes more robust the longer you look out in, in time. So for example, uh, valuations are very poor predictors of performance over the next one year, for example, or the next three months, but they're very robust predictors of, of performance over the next five, seven, 10 years. In fact, the longer the time frame, the more statistically robust those, those valuations become. So uh, that's, that's our view of long-term investing, using that information to, to tactically underweight things like equities when they're extremely overvalued. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Um, we totally agree with, with Michael's comments there. And, and we not only uh, agree with it, but we express that in how we advise our clients uh, to, to allocate their portfolios. All right. And that's, you know, why uh, it's so worrisome when we pull up that chart that uh, John Hussman has of uh, the scatter plot that he he shows that basically projects the 12-year, um, the expected average 12-year return for the S&P given its current level of valuation. And I believe that's still hanging out in a like negative 4% annually for the next 12 years, right? And so, you know, as you said, it's it's it tends to be more predicted the the longer time frame you go out. Um, so that's a little bit worrisome. Um, all right, so a couple of quick things. One, you mentioned uh, the new New Harbor YouTube channel, and I want to give you guys some kudos for that, uh, some well-deserved kudos. Um, you guys have been uh, the past couple of months really investing in, uh, producing a lot of content yourselves on your your new YouTube channel, and I got to say, guys, it's great. You know that you you do a really good job of creating these pretty concise, digestible sort of explainer videos, either about things that have just happened in the market or trying to make a certain concept uh, better understandable to your audience. So, folks, if you're watching this, if you haven't been to the the New Harbor YouTube channel, just go to YouTube and and type in New Harbor and search for it. Um, I want to thank addition. you for that, but I want to make it very clear. The, our channel is primarily to, you know, we want to be able to speak to our clients at their level. Um, and I'll, we're, we're, we're never going to try to uh, be what you have created and will create again with thoughtful money. Um, you know, you, in fact, we are as um, hungry digesters of your information as probably your most avid viewers, because, you know, in our seats, Mike and I, you know, we, we pride ourselves in our team of being experts and, and we, we set high standards for ourselves, but we also, inject, we need to inject a tremendous amount of humility. Um, and one way we do that is make sure we take in the perspectives of others and challenge our, our own strong held beliefs. So, so your channel, the, the guests that you bring on, um, you know, we're, we're not only peer with you, but we, we, we digest um, viciously the, uh, the content you, you put out. So we thank you for that. Well, thank you. And mutual admiration society. And it's interesting, you know, I get people who are saying, well, Adam, you know, I love you, love thoughtful money. I've stopped watching this channel or that channel. And, uh, I just want to make it clear to folks, like it's not a competition. There's lots of great educators out there all over the world. And, and we should be ingesting as much of the useful quality content wherever we may find it. So anyways, I, I just want to flag that. I think a lot of the stuff you guys are putting out is a great compliment to the long form interviews that we do here. Um, all right, so uh, last thing on on Pento, um, you know, he he sort of, you know, scoped out this arc of, um, you know, last hurrah run up, followed by, you know, probably pretty vicious market correction. You know, he talked about the average correction of 32% in the S&P during recessions, and he's thinking it could be worse than that, given how overvalued things are. Uh, but then he sees a prolonged period of stagflation over, 
you know, after that, right? And each of those different phases requires different positioning that went through with him. Um, I'm curious for his stagflation forecast, um, how does that fit versus sort of how you guys see the world? I guess I'll respond to that. I mean, stagflation implies um, inflation coupled with stagnant growth. It's possible. Um, yeah, my own opinion, and, uh, and, and I think that John and I mostly agree on this. My own opinion is that I think that we see an asset price crash that surprises most of us, which could even, in my opinion, could even uh, roll into deflation. I think that potential deflation is a bigger risk than stagflation. We'll see. But it's in the policy response to that shock, that surprise, that we may see either runaway inflation or stagflation. And I think I think that Michael was saying or implying that stagflation could come in conjunction with the Fed's response because they are going to flood the world with dollars. That's all they know. That's all they do. And from these levels of valuations, and you mentioned Husband's chart earlier. It's funny. I actually have it up on my other monitor at the moment. Valuations imply negative returns from these levels. That either means that we, in general, won't go higher from here, or if we do, we'll end up lower than we are today, 10 years from now. And so, you know, Michael also talked about, and I mentioned how 100% of tax revenues are going to go to pay the debt by 2040. You know, that's only 17 or 16 years away now. If you throw an economic contraction or a stock market crash into that mix, and on top of that, a housing market crash, which has to happen in general, you know, the whole wealth effect historically has got to has got to come unwound. That's what happens when you print fake money to solve every problem. So, you know, I don't know how to predict whether we're going to see stagflation or straight off uh, inflation. I mean, inflation, I suppose, would be uh, a measurable economic growth coupled with inflation. You might be able to accept that if you've got good GDP growth, but stagflation would be more of a flat GDP coupled with, you know, horrible inflation. Um, uh, the way that we're approaching that is high cash values, hedges on whatever equity that we have, and a strategy on how to get in and what we think is likely to be the crash. We have a layering strategy coupled with options that we will like, start layering into either sectors or indexes, or indices, I should say, on the way down at key technical levels. The, the charts that Hussman and others point out say that the market should be, or the S&P should be at 1,800 or below to produce 8% returns. You know, I hate to say that, but that's, a, that's like a 70% decline from the top. And if we have one more blow off top after this, and we could, it's only going to get worse from there. You know, there's, there's people on Twitter and on the internet calling for moves up to 6,000 plus on the S&P. We can't rule it out. But ultimately, the crash will be worse. And without really strong GDP growth, which we're not seeing, nor can we likely produce organically, the market's bound to be a lot lower. So high cash, buy the dip very slowly, um, very slowly and with hedges, and hopefully get fully invested at much better levels. And so that's probably my best answer. The only last quick thing I'd say is about bonds. I do think, like Mike thinks, that, that there will be a short opportunity, short being six, 18 months, you know, where long bonds will rally quite a bit. And, um, you know, I think that could do well during that time as well. Okay. Obviously, bonds, uh, the future of bonds, very different, whether you're going into a stagflationary environment or deflationary environment. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically, we're going to have you guys on the channel, you know, week, 
weekly from here. So you'll be able to kind of, you know, audibly, you know, iterate your, your projections based upon what's happening on the ground. Just because we've mentioned it a couple of times, I'm just going to pull up the latest version of this chart from John Hussman that, that we've been referring to. This is his uh, chart that's basically, um, you know, looking at history and saying, okay, when, when the S&P has been this valued, um, here are the 12-year returns it, it tends to, to deliver. Um, you can see here, th this chart's the most recent one I could find, but it's it's over a year, or, sorry, a month and a half old here, um, showing back in kind of mid-October when stocks were lower than where they are right now, uh, valuation-wise, that uh, it was projected to deliver a negative 4% return per year for the next 12 years. Um, and so folks, it probably doesn't mean, you know, like clockwork every year is just down 4%. It probably means pretty wild swings, big corrections, big recoveries and whatnot. But the, the net change would be, you know, a, a, a decade plus of negative returns in the stock market, given, you know, where we're starting from today. Um, if, you know, is this going to happen? I don't know. We're going to be watching very, very closely. But as John said, uh, it's studies like this that tend to be where valuation tends to be a lot more predictive when you're looking at it over a, a much longer time frame than, say, the next month or the next quarter. Um, so, all right, guys, we're running out of time here. Um, real quickly, uh, we have seen gold kind of wake up of late. Um, and uh, I know gold plays a role in your guys' portfolio. Um, I know that uh, you guys have held it for a long time, uh, especially given concerns about inflation and loss of purchasing power and just the under general undervaluation of commodities. Uh, but uh, John, maybe I'll hand the football to you, you here uh, in terms of wrapping up. Um, is there anything about the recent action and activity in gold that's catching your eye more so than when gold was back up here last? Yeah, absolutely. Um, love to talk about that. And it is one piece of our overall per uh, portfolio allocation. We're not all in, but we think it's a very important part of the equation. And we agree with Michael Pento's comments about in a state static pleasure environment, that's exactly the environment where something like uh, precious metals and commodities can actually do quite well, even if bonds and stocks, traditional financial assets do, do poorly. Um, Adam, I'd like to share a quick couple of quick charts, though, if I could. Um, sure. You kind of illuminate this discussion. So um, uh, hopefully you can see this, your viewers can see this chart. First thing I want to point out is gold has kind of gotten a, a bad rap. Um, this chart, um, what I've done here, and, and we actually, to be clear, we we many of our clients own uh, gold bullion in various forms and accounts and vaults and things like that. Um, and we actually, from an investment standpoint, like the gold miners. Uh, they're a, a, a obviously a very um, uh, uh, appropriate way to play a, a, a longer term move in, in gold. But the miner is actually quite undervalued relative to the price of metal itself. And you might even say, we freely admit, they've been laggards relative to the metals if you look, look at over the last three years, for example. The caveat, though, the last one month or three months, the miners have outpaced the metal itself. So we think that's a rather encouraging short term, um, uh, maybe handing over the baton, so to speak, the relative strength. But this chart here, I want to first kind of point out that as, as much as these mining stocks have frustrated people who hold them, including us and our clients. If you look, uh, if you go back to the peak in the stock market of January, 2022, uh, and this basically shows the performance of the broad, uh, some broad markets, the S&P 500, uh, the Russell 2000 and the S&P 500 equal weight. Gold miners as measured by GDX, an ETF, has actually out, outpaced on a total return over that timeframe. 
the last essentially almost two years. If we look at year to date, with the exception of, of the, you know, the, the sectors, and these are sector ETFs, the sectors that are very heavy weighted in the MAG7, the Magnificent 7 stocks, these super overvalued stocks like uh, NVIDIA and, and Apple, and you know, we've talked about them at Ignosium here. But you look here, um, gold, the gold miners have actually been up about 9%. This is year to date. And it's outpaced pretty much every sector except for uh, the tech sector, which is again heavy weighted to those those, those mag sevens, the consu uh, dis dis discretionary uh, consumer discretionary, which has some of these you know discretionary item stocks that that we think are in the crosshairs with looking at you know consumer uh, debt loads and and start raising default rates and things like that. And then the uh, the other sector was the um, was communication. That's I think very heavily weighted in two stocks, Facebook and Google, <laughs> right? So those are part of the MAG7. So as, as bad a rep as gold miners have gotten, they've actually done pretty darn well over the last uh, couple of years, and especially this year to date. Um, hmm. So I want to I wanna stop sharing that and just go to a, a, a near-term chart of, of the gold miner just to illuminate on that a little bit more. So I'm going to share uh, our trading screen here. This is a chart of GDX. So again, the gold miners. I'm going to hide our, our faces here, hopefully. So this is a daily chart. Each one of these bars is, is a daily uh, daily move. We had a massive, massive move higher yesterday right here. Um, today, we're kind of flat, you know, virtually unchanged. But a couple of things. We had a, a low here recently at $25.62 a share in GDX. This is, again, a basket of mostly uh, senior gold mining stocks. This is a very powerful uh, breakout um, from, from this. And in fact, you can kind of see a what we might call a head and shoulders technical pattern here. You know, if we draw the neckline somewhere around here, this projects a move up to 33, 34-ish. Um, you know, so, so a, a pretty good further move from here. You'll see some dotted lines here. These are basically hedges we have. We have a collar position on half of our, our gold mining exposure um, where we have a put option that basically uh, protects below that prior low, okay? And we paid for that put option by selling almost virtually costless. There was a couple of pennies of, of debit that we had per share. Um, I think it might've been about four cents per share. So relatively negligible, but we sold the call option here at this, this uh, uh, what we would see as a, a natural resistance level at 33. So that, you know, and then the other half we have on hedge. So this is a very powerful uh, near-term breakout uh, combine that with the, you know, last month and last three month uh, outpacing of gold bullion by the miners, and we think it's a, a very powerful setup. That's awesome, um, and I love how you show there um, how you guys are using options um, to both add safety and security uh, to the um, to the portfolio. But if you ever get into a scenario where you're covered calls are getting called away to a certain extent, you're pretty thrilled because it means the underlying assets actually done really well and provided a really nice return for your your uh, your clients. That is right. And and but we also actively manage those option positions. We, you know, if, if the conditions support it and we'll take the evidence as it comes, there's nothing stopping us from moving that collar hedge out and upward. So in effect, you know, similar to like a trailing stop. So just because we have a, a call option and that, that expires in a couple of weeks, uh, middle of December, by the way. Um, so we'll be reviewing and what to do with that. Um, but it's very possible we may move those up and out. So, um, you know, our clients may not be leaving any money on the table in terms of capped upside because we may have the opportunity to move those those hedges up and out and, and still ride a, a trend 
if it continues in that direction. Great. And folks, this is a big reason why I have uh, these financial advisors come on this channel every week is to show you how professionals are thinking and reacting to what's going on in the markets, but also using their expertise to do things like mitigate risk while still preserving as much open upside as possible. Um, and you know, having them come in every week gives us the ability to see how they're making changes in real time week to week in their portfolios to what's what's happening on the ground. And again, this is a reminder for folks, um, you know, this channel is of the mindset that most people watching this uh, are regular people with real lives or real demands on their time. They don't have the expertise, the time, the bandwidth, the interest uh, to be managing, you know, their financial portfolios um, in this highly focused way that the professionals do, which is why I think you should work with most people watching should work with a good professional Obviously, one who takes into account all the issues that Michael and I talked about and that that the advisors here and I talk about. Um, I have the guys like New Harbor on so you can see what a good financial professional looks like. Um, you will have the opportunity, if you want to, to, to talk to these guys and have a free consultation with them if that's what you choose. But if not, at least you know how a good financial advisor looks, thinks, talks, operates, et cetera, so that when you're surveying and talking to other different ones, you know, hopefully, how to separate the good ones from the, the posers. Um, all right, so folks, I gotta I gotta wrap things up here. Um, John and Mike, it's so nice to have you guys back on the program. Welcome to Thoughtful Money. Great having you back on. Great commentary, um, uh, folks. Uh, as I, I mentioned, um, we are setting up a, a a free consultation service where if you just want to talk to one of the endorsed financial advisors by Thoughtful Money, have them give you feedback on your personal situation and what they think you should do. Um, we are I'm working furiously in the background to get that set up. Uh, once it's up and running, you will be able to go to thoughtfulmoney.com and schedule one of those free consultations. It's not quite up and running as of the time we're recording this. It may not be up and running exactly by the time this video airs, but it should be up and running within a week or so. And so if you're going back to that URL and it's uh, it's still password protected, hopefully within a couple of days, uh, it shouldn't be anymore. And you should be able to go access it and schedule a free consultation if that's what you want to do. More on that as I make progress. Um, and just wrapping things up here, folks, uh, if you enjoyed this conversation with Michael Pento, who's always wonderful to talk to and you want to see him come back on the program. And if you want to show John and Mike how excited you are that they've been able to join us here, uh, please show all that by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below. What was that little bell icon right next to it? And as a reminder, uh, at my new Substack, where I'm giving lots of updates on the whole thoughtful money movement throughout the week, um, I am also sharing my Adams notes, which are my write-ups to all the, the main interviews that we do here on this channel. Um, and if you want to get those, uh, go to the Substack, the premium subscribers get those Adams notes. Uh, to sign up to the Substack for free or for premium, just go to adamtaggart.substack.com. And again, uh, by the time you see this video, the uh, notes for the interview with Michael should be published. Um, all right, John and Mike, just want to give you guys uh, the last word here. Um, Mike, anything you want to say to folks as we wrap up? just want to say it's good to be back here with you, Adam. And we really do enjoy speaking to folks that reach out to us. We're serious when we say that we want to help. You're not going to get a sales pitch. You know, reach out to us. Uh, you know, we'll have a, a, a frank discussion. We'll give you our best unbiased advice. And a lot of people have found that valuable and we enjoy doing it. So thanks for watching. All right, folks. Uh, and if uh, if you, I know this has been a bit of a long video, but if you're still uh, hungry for more of this type of information and you haven't seen it yet, 
I had an interview with Simon Hunt uh, that just released uh, right before this one. And I'll tell you, folks, there are bearish outlooks out there. And then there are Simon Hunt's outlooks out there, which are just incredibly bearish. Um, but it's, I think it's a very um, valuable discussion to listen to because um, Simon sits outside of the U.S. He's based in Dubai. Uh, he's been a commodity expert for his very long career. So watching the flows of commodities is his expertise, which is basically like watching the the, the flow of blood through the the geo uh, the global economic uh, circulatory system. It gives him a really interesting and, and somewhat unique insider's view on what's going on. Um, and for that alone, I think it's worth listening to. Um, if you haven't watched that yet, I'll put up a link to it right here so you can watch it after this video. John and Mike, thanks so much, guys. Again, great to have you back here. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching.